If you would open your Bibles again to Acts chapter 17. For the third week in a row, we're going to be uh, reading the same passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16 and continuing through the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, Why does this ba- what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yes, He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own prophets or own poets have said. For we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead." Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Almighty God, we... Again, approach you in prayer. I ask that you would give us wisdom uh, in your word. Help us to understand also, as we are asking the question, what should be our method in uh, doing apologetics. Uh, Give us wisdom again uh, from your word. And Father, I pray most of all that you would lift up the Lord Jesus. For when he is lifted up, He says that He draws all people to Himself. 
We pray in His name. Amen. Last week we began looking at this whole issue of apologetics. Apologetics study of how to defend the faith. More specifically, it is a study of how to persuade someone of the Christian faith. And since Paul is in Athens in Acts 17, and Athens is a decidedly non-Christian culture, we are asking what we can learn from Paul's apologetic method to help us to develop our own apologetic method um, in our own time and culture. Since we're celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, I'm going to give just a very brief uh, review of last week and uh, quickly then jump into the new part of the sermon. Last week we learned that the starting point for developing a Christian apologetic is the Word of God. The Bible always assumes uh, that the Bible is inerrant, that it is inspired, that it is the authoritative word of the true and living God. Even in Athens, where the overwhelming percentage of people that were living there were non-believers, they had not even heard of the word of God, much less believed it. Paul proclaimed God's word as God's word, without uh, hesitation or apology. And as I said last week, I believe that this um, is the method that we should... this should be the starting point of our method in developing our own apologetics. We must start with the Word of God and proclaim it to be the Word of God. But of course the question uh, quickly becomes... How do I know that the Bible is God's Word? And I answered this question, or attempted to, um, trying to be as provocative as possible last week, by saying that we know that the Word of God, or that the Bible is the Word of God, because the Bible tells us that it is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed. It's the very Word of God. And God being God, He has the right to tell us that it is His Word. God being God has the right to tell us what is right and what is wrong. He has the right to tell us what is good and what is bad. He has the right to tell us what is just or unjust. And He can tell us these things without having to justify Himself. He is the Creator. He is our Creator. And He has determined what is right or wrong based on his own holy uh, character. Similarly, he has the right to tell us that the Bible is his word on the sole grounds that he is the author. And you will remember that I recognized uh, last week that that opens me up to the charge of arguing in a circle since I'm asserting in my premise what I am asserting in the conclusion. But I went on to expand uh, my circle. So I'm arguing circularly, I'll admit that. But then I went on to give reasons why I think that it is not a small circle, but actually a very big circle. I gave reasons, subjective reasons, why I believe the Word of God, the Bible is the Word of God. I gave what I believe to be objective reasons as well, 
why I believe the, the Bible is the Word of God, trying to, to inflate the circle, so to speak. Um, I did not say this last week, but I'll add it now, that the truthfulness of God's Word uh, does not, nor should it ever, rest on a man's ability to prove it to be the Word of God. In other words, if the Word of God is not the Word of God, if we can't prove it to be the Word of God, then um, that's just a a wrong-headed approach uh, all the way around. It is God's Word because God says uh, it is His Word. But after... um, Let me say this. I'm transitioning here uh, into um, to um, the newer part of what I wanted to say this morning, and that is, or the part two that I did not get to say uh, this week. The Bible does not simply speak to Christians, nor does the Bible simply speak to issues of religion. The Bible makes very clear statements about where the universe came from. The Bible makes um, very clear statements, unequivocal statements, about where we came from. The Bible says God created the universe. The Bible says God created this world. The Bible says that God created us. The Bible also says what is right and what is wrong. The Bible also says what is true and untrue. In other words, the Bible claims to give us an entire world and life view. The Bible gives us a very distinct philosophy of life and expects us to live according to it. And the us is not simply Christians, but all humanity. Furthermore, The Bible asserts that when Adam uh, and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that all mankind sinned with them. The Bible even says that we sinned in Adam. So that every human being that has been born from the union of a man and a woman have been born as sinners, have come from the womb, alienated from God, unwilling even unable to know God apart from His grace. In fact, the Bible's own testimony says that non-Christians or unbelievers are unwilling and unable to accept that the Bible is God's Word. This means that my assertion that the Bible is God's Word because God says so is going to fall on deaf ears when talking to an unbeliever. That is the Bible's own testimony. Everybody must believe that the Bible is God's Word because God says so, but the Bible also says that unbelievers won't believe it, won't accept it. So then, what hope is there to persuade someone that the Bible is God's Word? We need a point of contact with non-believers where we can talk together. We need some sort of commonly accepted truth where we can stand and speak. I'm going to mention Immanuel Kant in an unfavorable manner in a few moments. 
but I'm going to uh, mention him favorably right now. He was a philosopher that lived in the uh, latter half of the 19th century, 18th century, from about 1750s to about the 1820s. And uh, one of the things he said is that um, to prove something to be true, you need to be able to step out of your worldview um, to examine the, the point of view from which you were looking at a subject. The problem is, once you step out of that worldview, you step by necessity into another worldview, and he says that there's an infinite regress where you would be... It's, 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 it's impossible for finite creatures to know anything for certain um, or to prove something for certain. And um, so when I talk about a point of contact, I recognize that there's a sense in which Believers and unbelievers can't come to a neutral ground to talk. They can't step outside themselves, really, uh, to find a common ground. Uh, so, but yet we need that point of contact. So what is this point of contact? I think... Paul shows us where this common ground or this point of contact lies even though, as I said, I'm making this little caveat, that there is no truly neutral common ground upon which we can stand. But look at verses 22 through 28 and see where Paul finds this common ground. He says, um, oh, starting with verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for, I pa- for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Then he goes on and basically he's saying the point of contact here is the fact that all people and all things are created by God. Paul is saying that the point of contact between an unbeliever and a believer Really, the point of contact for all humanity is the fact that God is the creator of all humanity. In other words, when I'm speaking to an unbeliever, I know that I am speaking to someone who knows deep down that they are created by God and are living in a world created by Him. So you can see this is... I'm still making a truth claim that uh, not everyone would uh, give their assent to. But I am making a truth claim that the Bible certainly makes and that Paul, making an appeal that the Apostle Paul appealed to. How do I know that every person knows that they are created by God and that they live in a creation that was created by Him. 
Well, you should know by now that the answer I'm going to give is the Bible tells me so. So in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the Bible says everybody knows God. The problem is the reason people don't accept God as God, the reason they don't believe in him, or the reason why they substitute false gods for the true God is they are suppressing the knowledge of Him in their unrighteousness because of the fall. Adam and Eve sinned, they are alienated from God, and they would get rid of God if they could. And so these attempts, the Bible says, of making gods or of trying to become more materialistic um, are attempts at getting rid of God. Also, listen to what the Bible says in, in uh, Romans chapter 2, the next chapter, uh, in verses 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. People have consciences. Why do they have consciences? Because God has put eternity into their hearts. I think the book of uh, Proverbs uh, tells us. And so Paul here in our passage is telling the Greeks that it is evident. And he assumes it. He assumes, he he proclaims that God is the creator. And so he's saying that it is evident that they know God at some level. Because, how does he know it? Well, he, he, he points to all the idols. You've got idols to every god. You have an idol even to the unknown god. All this is evident that you, or evidence that you do indeed know God deep down in your souls. At some level. The problem is, you don't like Him and you are suppressing Him. He's not commending the Athenians for setting up an idol to the unknown God as if this idol to the unknown God was a a halfway house to the true God. Rather, he's saying, you show yourselves to actually believe what the Bible says in terms of God being the Creator. But you are um, setting up these idols in rebellion to Him. They are actually suppressing the knowledge of God rather than finding the halfway house in the, the uh, idol to the unknown God. And so He's rebuking them. And uh, that will be clear when we jump down to verses 32 and following in a few moments. But I want you to look at verse 27. 
Because he is not presenting God as being angry and ready to, um, to uh, pour out his justice on the Athenians. Rather, the Apostle Paul is saying that God, whom they are treating as unknown, that God actually desires to have a relationship with them. Verse 27. God, um, in verses 26, and, and says that God uh, created man, desire, designed the place where they would live, the times from where they would live, and providentially provides for them. Why? Verse 27. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, God is not trying to hide from humanity. He loves humanity. In fact, He loves them even as they are sinners. In fact, He loves humanity. He loves sinners so much that He sent His only, His one and only Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to become a human being, to suffer at the hands of human beings, to bleed at the hands of human beings, and then go to the cross and suffer the eternal punishment of God there on the cross so that a holy God could have fellowship with unholy man. The whole meaning of the cross is that God poured out His wrath on Jesus so He could then justly welcome us into His presence so that our sins could be forgiven so that we might be clothed with Christ's righteousness. God is not trying to hide from humanity and that's what Paul is telling them. But yet it seems like he's hiding from us, doesn't it? It's very easy for us to reason. Well, if God wants to have a a relationship with us, why doesn't he do these miracles? Why doesn't he make it plain to us that he exists? Well, as I read in Romans 1, we could also look at Psalm 19. The Bible says that, that these things are plain to us. Look at how perfectly suited this world is for humanity. We have everything we need. Look at the blessings we receive, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever. The Bible says that God causes the rain to fall on the fields of the just and the unjust. Or look in the mirror. You are created in the image of God. Uh, Even though the fall of Adam did much to distort it, the image remains. We have souls that are full of life and personality. We We have a whole range of emotions that God created us with that add zest to our um, to our lives. Look at pregnancy. And the whole birth process takes a lot of faith, I believe, for a person to assert that pregnancy and the whole birth process 
is just a biological happenstance or an accident. Just because we can understand the science of pregnancy and birth doesn't mean that it takes it out of the realm of being an act of God. Look at the need for truth and ethics. If everything were random and meaningless, it would be impossible for us to exist here in this world. We need truth. We need ethics. Even people who like to assert or claim that that everything is meaningless, they still live by truth claims. They still live by a set of ethics. And I'll say more about that in a few moments. If the if 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 it is so evident that God created this world, why aren't more people willing to consider Christianity in our own culture? Or why is our culture mainly materialistic? Is it because science has provided proof positive that the world was created by accident? Is it because the theory of evolution has proven conclusively that man originated from an amoeba? In a word, has modern science disproved Christianity? Absolutely not. But they like to act that they have. Remember how I placed the circular reasoning on the table? How I said I'd, last week I purposely placed it on the table? Well, here's where I take it up again, and I use it as a weapon. Um, Conclusive proof is impossible. The whole history of philosophy bears out um, this question that, that, that... that conclusive proof is is a dead-end street. Um, the whole question of what is real, the study, the, on, on, the study of well, the study of ontology, uh, the, the the discipline of ontology, and its sister question, how do we know what is real, epistemology? Both of these questions ended up in a dead-end street way back in the 1750s. Um, the rationalist ended up becoming a skeptic. Becoming a skeptic, the empiricists, those people who believe what is what they can see, what they can experience is real, they ended up being skeptics as well. And the whole pursuit of philosophy ground to a halt in the 1750s when David Hume said, "We we can't even." Um, or causality can't even be proven. And so uh, philosophy ground to a halt for about 40 years uh, until uh, Immanuel Kant came along. And he, had, he made two contributions to the history of philosophy, a lot, actually a lot of contributions, but I'm going to mention two for our purposes. And although I quoted him favorably earlier, I am going to quote him very disfavorably uh, now. Immanuel Kant said that if, everything, if we can't know anything to be true, um, he ended up saying that man is the truth giver. 
that um, truth is not truth until um, a person interprets it to be true. So there's the data of the world out there and you through your cognitive grid interpret that data as it comes to you, you interpret it to be true. Or I could use glasses. Right now you are just all fuzzy lips. I can't, I can't, I'm trying to think. Maybe David Crabtree and Jim Eggert, maybe the elders I could tell. Otherwise, you are uninterpretable to me. I can't see you, but all of a sudden I put on my glasses and everything comes into focus. And I am able to interpret who each one of you uh, really is. Well, Immanuel Kant said that you have no meaning to me until I interpret you to be who you are. And so the question that you've heard, does a tree fall in the forest, or when a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Immanuel Kant would say no if there's no human interpreter there to give meaning to it. So man gives meaning to stuff. So truth varies with each person's opinion. There is no truth until man provides it. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound descriptive of our culture? We live in Immanuel Kant's world, even though he lived uh, in the late uh, 1700s and early 1800s. Maybe you even haven't even heard of Immanuel Kant. Well, he shapes our culture. The upshot of what he taught is that all is relative. Truth is changing. The problem with that is that is his presupposition. That is his starting point. Now you see why I laid the the circular reasoning on the table. I've got my starting point. God tells me where my starting point is. And someone might say it is arbitrary to claim that all truth is relative or there is no truth is just as arbitrary. I think more so. And I can't go into why I believe that this morning because I've got to keep moving. The second contribution that uh, Immanuel Kant made was he, there was a man named Lessing, a German named Lessing. Immanuel Kant was German and Austrian actually. He took this philosopher named Lessing Uh, And one of his teaching, which has come to be called Lessing's Ditch. And what he did, what Lessing did was he bifurcated um, reality. He said there's an upper story, and in this upper story belongs faith, belongs spiritual things, belongs God. And then down in the lower story, there is uh, um, uh, the stuff we experience. He called the upper story um, the noumenal, the, the lower story he called the phenomenal. And this has become a presupposition of science. Uh, We cannot accept anything from the Bible, the scientists tell us. Why? Because that's an article of faith. They cannot even consider it. Oh, I'm looking at the time. Um, I'm going to tell it anyway because I think it will help. When I was a... um, when I was in seminary, I had a job at a church on the. It was right on the edge of the University of Pennsylvania, you know, Ivy League school. And my job was to be the college minister. And I would go out on the University of Pennsylvania, try and meet students, try and talk to them about the Lord. It wasn't going anywhere. So I started going to the Christian um, 
clubs that they had, and I went to the InterVarsity. So I went to the InterVarsity for the graduate students, InterVarsity for the um, undergrads, and made friends with the, the student leaders from both. And so all of a sudden we had a big college group coming to our church. And so I had these uh, graduate students. One of, my, one of the students in my college group uh, discovered a new anti-proton because he was doing an internship at the Fermi Labs up in Chicago. I don't know what an anti-proton is, but there were some smart people. And they had um, James Sire, I don't know if you the, the author in, to speak. And he was talking to them, and the subject was, can you as a Christian um, survive in, a, in, in, in the academic world if you put your Christianity out there? And to a person, they said no. They said, we have to keep our Christianity hidden. And what they were discussing in this, I don't have a category for this, they were discussing the possibility, in their minds, very real possibility of whether they would be able to um, win the Nobel Peace Prize in science if they let it be known that they were a Christian. And they said, no, it would destroy our careers. The very fact that you would give credence to spiritual things and say that the spiritual, the noumenal, has a place in the phenomenal would, in the science world, excise them or kick them out, make them a pariah. If you doubt me, there was a movie in, in 2008 called Expelled. Ben Stein, remember the guy uh, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? You know, the, the teacher, Bueller, Bueller. Um, he deadpans. Well, he's... It's, it's a he he is the narrator of this movie, and um, he shows how how anything having to do with faith and the Bible has been expelled from the scientific pursuit, and it all goes back to Lessing Stitch. It all goes back to Immanuel Kant with this bifurcation. Prove to me there's a bifurcation. It's a presupposition. They themselves are making a circular argument that rests at the foundation for their philosophy of science. Ah, there's a lot more I'm going I'm to leave off. There will be a part three. Um, but at this point is where I can go and take the roof off of another person's position and have them invite them to look with me into their position and realize as we look into the house of their reality that there is no foundation. Um, I'm wasting time trying to figure out what I can say and not say. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian apologist, he used to tell the story of a man who would play music on the piano and uh, Robert... Um, this man was known as a great pianist, but he couldn't do anything compared to what you were able to do on that piano. What this guy would do was he would bang randomly at the piano. And what he was saying is there is no truth. All is random. All is relative. And Francis Schaeffer would point out that this man had a hobby. And that was... Uh, he, he, used, he loved to, to pick mushrooms... Well, what happens if you go out and indiscriminately pick mushrooms and eat them, stew them up? You're going to die. Because some of those mushrooms are poisonous, others are good and healthy. And if this man believes there's no truth and that all is relative, he should have been able to go and 
pick those mushrooms indiscriminately. Um, but he didn't. And what he was showing was that he was borrowing truth from God. Or to put it more pointedly, he was um, stealing truth from God in order for him to survive. Everybody must borrow. Even the most ardent atheists must borrow or steal from God in order to survive. People in their efforts to suppress God will build elaborate truth claims in order to try and rid themselves of Him. What is the goal of apologetics? It's not to convince a person. You're not going to be able to. The goal we see here in verses 32 and following. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, I'm sorry, uh, go back up to verse 30. The Apostle Paul concludes his little sermon, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. God is intent on reconciling sinful man to Himself. The Apostle Paul proclaims this, and he says, The way, he says, God commands people to turn from their rebellion, turn from their um, hiding from God or suppressing the truth of God, and come to Him. God commands all people everywhere to repent. He wants people to escape the coming judgment. He says in verse 31 that there is a a coming judgment. And that day is fixed. God has planned when that day will be. And it is certain because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. He makes that judgment certain. But at the very same moment, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who opens up the way of escape from that judgment. He says, Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your souls. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is that escape from from judgment. He is the escape from justice. Sinners, having broken God's law, must be punished. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came and hung on that cross to take the punishment so that in Him we might have life. I have gone well beyond... Um, we're, we have the joy this morning of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Um, let me quickly pray and we'll begin singing and then we will transition over to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Almighty God, I do pray that you would use this um, passage of Scripture in my Uh, proclamation of it to bolster um, the faith of your people. Father, if there are any here who don't believe, I pray, and who are committed to a materialistic view of life, I pray that you would use this to to shake uh, the foundations of their confidence. And God, I pray that we all would love the Lord Jesus more today than we loved Him yesterday. We pray in His name. Amen.